0: Much like the parts of an engine for a vehicle, so too there are many parts to the church. Today we'll take a look at the blueprint for church leadership. We're in Titus chapter one. We would invite you to join us. This is Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City with our teacher and pastor Steve Converse. A look at the church is coming up next. Join us. And again, welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. We're in Titus chapter 1, looking at verses 5 through 8 today, a message entitled, Blueprint for Church Leadership. We'll be taking a look at the qualifications of an elder and precisely what an elder is, why it's important for a church to have them. It's all straight ahead on today's broadcast. We would invite you to join us. Once again, from Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. Our teacher and pastor now, Steve Converse, with this edition of Graceful Truth. This morning we want
1: to look at the blueprint for church leadership. Uh, God doesn't just leave this as an open door for whatever we want to do as a church. He clearly defines and marks out for us uh, what exactly um, He wants for His church. It is His church, by the way. This is not our church. You understand that? This is his church. This is Christ's church. He purchased it with his own blood. And so we need to be reminded of that, that there are, you know, so many times, you know, we refer, oh, you know, would you like to come to my church? Or the church I pastor, or this or that. And sometimes we forget that, you know what, this is not our church. This is God's church. And this is God's property. This is God's building And uh, we need to be reminded not to hold on too tightly to it. And uh, pray that this morning God will speak to your hearts. But we want to look at the blueprint for leadership in God's church. Biblical leadership, God's order for His church. And I just want to read for us um, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. We're going to cover part of this this morning and part of it next week. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Paul is writing here to his young pastor Titus who he left in Crete and so he starts off in verse 5 he says this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are the instructions to Paul, from Paul to Timothy. So I want to Remind us, last week we looked at basically godly living in a pagan society, and we talked briefly just about the idea that to be God's people in a pagan society, first of all, we have to be saved by grace. That's the first step. You're not going to be any good to anybody if you're not saved and understand that you are saved by grace, and we talked about that at length. And then secondly, we said to be God's people in a pagan society, we who are saved by grace must engage in good deeds. The Bible says that God has prepared beforehand deeds for us to do as Christians. We don't just get saved and then sit down and do absolutely nothing. That's being disobedient. That's being rebellious to the Word of God because God's Word clearly tells us that that's not an option for Christians. If we're saved by God's grace, we have to be engaged in good deeds. Where those good deeds happen, they happen outside the church. They happen within the walls of the church. And then the third thing we looked at is to be God's people in a pagan world, we must submit ourselves to the authority of the local church. We're called to submit ourselves to the authority of the local church. And that is a word that makes the hair stand up on the back of the head of a lot of people. That word authority. But if you've got a problem with that, take it up with God. I'm just telling you what God's word tells us. And so I want to answer the question for us this morning. Who runs the church? Who's responsible to run the church? And some of you may be sitting there going, I've heard this before. You know, it may be a review. Sometimes we need to review basic things so that they're stirred up in our heart afresh. And then there's some of you maybe that are brand new to our church. And you're wondering, yeah, who does? How does this church work? How does it operate? Maybe you don't quite fully understand how the church polity, the church government works here. Well, more than telling you just how it works here, I want to tell you what the Bible says, how it should work. <laughs> I think that's important that we go to the Word of God. A lot of people wrongly assume that the pastor of the local church, whoever it may be, runs the church. A lot of times people will call in the, in the office and they'll say, yeah, we'd like to talk to the pastor. I said, well, what do you want to talk to them about? <laughs> you know, they don't know I'm the pastor, but... <laughs> So I kind of asked the question, you know, and, and sometimes it has nothing to do with me. Sometimes it has to do with facilities or something. I said, well, that's somebody else. Well, you're the pastor. I said, I know, but I don't really oversee that. I don't do that. If you want to talk about a company that cleans the church, I can give you a guy's name that oversees that. Well, can't you make the decision? I said, no, I don't do that. So people assume that just because you're the pastor of a church, you're in, you're in total control of everything. Many people also wrongly assume that our church government in our churches today should be patterned after the U.S. government <laughs> and that it operates somehow as a democracy. In other words, the pastor and the elders, they're the elected officers, similar to the maybe you might the president and the vice president. And at the church business meetings, then the, the members come and uh, they can voice their opposition to whatever they don't like or whatever they like and they vote according to their preference. And some people think that's how you run a church. I mean, that system may work fine in America. Sometimes we wonder. But But at the risk of sounding un-American, beloved, I want you to understand that democracy is not the biblical way to view church government. It's just not. It's not biblical when it comes to church government. As shocking as it may sound for you this morning... (laughs) God is not an American. God is not an American. We forget that. You know, we live here in the the land of the free, and we we just automatically think that he's up there holding a big, you know, red, white, and blue flag. That's not true. Not that there's anything wrong with America. I think it's the greatest country in the world. A little biased. I've lived lived here all my life, but I think most of you would agree with me. Sorry, Dan, you're in the, the minority this morning. He's from Australia, so... And others, others of you from other countries, that's fine. You know, I'm sure you, you love your country too. And you'd say the same thing. But he didn't set up his church as a democracy. He didn't do it that way. Where the most powerful factions control the purse strings. That's not how it works. We're not free to impose our American ideas about government onto the church. Unless we find those ideas modeled for us in the word of God. Another model that has greatly influenced how the American churches are governed today, and we see that probably right at the top, is American business, the business world. Most Christians, you know, we we work in in the business world, or we have at times in our life. And we're used to various kinds of management, structure, structure. And operational procedures and all that kind of stuff. And, and most businesses have a what they call a chairman of the board at the top. And then they, he has a board of directors beneath him. And then they have the stockholders as the voting members of the corporation. And unfortunately, when that gets carried over into the church, all of a sudden you view the pastor as the CEO, the elder or the deacon board. They're the, the board of directors, his little hirelings to do whatever he wants. And then the congregation, well, they represent the stockholders. And when they have their annual meeting, they vote on how business should operate and disapprove and approve certain things. And it just becomes a big mess. And with that model, the answer to the question of who runs the church, well, the pastor runs the church. That's what they would say. He's the CEO, along with the board of directors. The stockholders have a say in things. If they don't like the way the company's being run or the way they wish, well, then they can just vote those guys out of office and they get a new pastor, a new elder board, whatever they might be. So it becomes a real popularity contest. Now, I don't want you to, we don't want to throw the the baby out with the bath water, okay? There are some similarities between business and government models and the church. There's some similarities there. But the biblical picture of church government is vastly different across the board one major difference is that the church is not an organization it's not an organization it's an organism it's a living organism all living organisms are highly organized anybody knows that if you've ever taken biology so we would be mistaken to throw out some careful organizational structure But as an organism, the body of Christ is not merely an organization. So strike that from your mind. Webster defines an organization as this. An administrative and functional structure. (laughs) An administrative and functional structure. If you look it up in Webster's Dictionary and you look under organization, that's what you're going to find. And that's fine. That's what it is. But that's not what the church is. He defines organism as this, look at this, an individual constituted to carry on the activities of life by means of organs separate in function, but mutually dependent. An individual constituted to carry on the activities of life by means of organs separate in function, but mutually dependent. If that doesn't describe the church, I don't know what does. The church is an organism. It's not just an organization of people. We're a living unity. The one body of which Christ Jesus is the head. He says that. And every member, every person that makes up the the local church is a vital part of that body. They're separate in function, but they're mutually dependent upon one another. And on Christ, our head. And so the main idea of of biblical church government, beloved, is to allow Jesus Christ to truly function as the living head of his body. Because it is his body. It is his church. None of us should be seeking or or even voicing our own will about various matters in the church. Unless we are very convinced that our will coincides with God's will. As revealed in His Word. And I don't care if you're the pastor of the church, or or you're greeting at the door, or you're you're helping in the kitchen, or you're, you're, you're not doing anything. If you're part of the local church, it's not your place to seek your own will. That's not what we're called to do. And it's not to be set up where one man runs the church. God's way is basically Christ runs His church through a plurality. Of godly men who shepherd his flock under his headship. That's God's model in scripture. Christ runs his church through a plurality. Several of godly men who shepherd his flock under his leadership. And when you stop and you look at here the situation behind the text that we just read. Here Paul has left Titus. This young pastor in Crete. Crete was a pagan place. It was not a good place to be. And he tells him right there. He said, you know what? You got your work cut out for you. You have to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. That's what Paul indicated was of utmost importance for Titus to do at this point in the ministry there at Crete. And Paul was going to help him. He was going to direct him. There was a bunch of struggling, fledgling churches across this island And they were struggling against this pagan culture in which they lived. And we spoke about that last week. They were plagued with things like false teachers with selfish motives. Who were upsetting whole families. Look at verse 10 and 11 of Titus 1. Many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. They must be silenced. They're upsetting whole families, Paul writes to Titus. See, the letter of Titus is aimed at correcting those problems. That's the purpose and he, Titus is the point man. Titus is the man who's going to get it done. We don't know a whole lot about Titus. But he must have been an unusually wise and solid, firm young man. Because years before, Paul had taken him along to Jerusalem, almost as a kind of an internship or a test case. Say, come on, Titus, you're coming with me. You're going to be my intern And he took them to Jerusalem to demonstrate to the apostles that, you know what? Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised to be saved. We read that in Galatians 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, in Galatians 2, 1 to 3, with Barnabas. And then he says, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles. Here's why. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Last verse there, three, says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. So he was making a point. He took Titus and he put him right in this awkward role, right at the very beginning. And later, Paul sent Titus over to Corinth. And we know what was going on in Corinth, right? We don't need to go into all the grisly details. I mean, it was just a rowdy bunch of people. They had stuff going all over the place. And Titus did well there with those people. He set things in order. And so now Paul comes to Titus again and he says, you know what? I'm going to leave you in Crete. And he asked Titus to set in order. That word set in order is kind of interesting. It's a word that means after you've broken a bone and the doctor, you know, you go in you get the x-ray. Oh, you broke your leg. What do they do next? They got to set it. They got to realign it. They got to make sure that it's going to grow together properly. It's a very painful process sometimes. That's what Paul was telling Titus to do. You have to go there. Something's broke. There's something not right going on here. I want you to set it in order to get them on a solid footing for their walk with Christ. Calvin points out in his commentary, this really reveals Paul's humility. It reveals Paul's humility. Because here he was, Paul, the great apostle Paul. I mean, he probably could have went there and fixed it himself, but what did he do? He took Titus, this young pastor who clearly was proven... Because Paul used him before. But he took him and he said, hey, I'm going to put you here and you're going to fix it. You're going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'll help you. I'll direct you. But you know what? I'm going to let you function in this role. It speaks about Paul's humility and it speaks about Paul's maturity in Christ. He wasn't trying to hog all the work for himself. So he got all the credit. That's not what Paul was about. And that's not what we should be about in ministry. It's significant that the major part of Paul's prescription for fixing these various problems, the major part of it, the the focus, was install godly leadership in these churches. If you start there, Titus, you'll deal with the problems. That's what he wanted done. I just want to point out, That the church needs godly, mature leaders who can stand for truth and refute error. That's what he says in verse 9. He says you have to be able to stand on the truth and you have to be able to refute error when you see it. And churches will be either strong or weak spiritually depending on the spiritual maturity and the doctrinal soundness of the leaders. I mean, I talked to some pastors and they got people in their church and even in their leadership. And they're all over the map theologically. Well, we don't focus on doctrine. It's like, holy mackerel, how do you work with this group of men? I mean, they can't even agree on, on, on simple doctrines. That proves to be, make a, a weak spiritual church. It's all hinged on the leadership. And so today I want to ask us three questions. First of all, what is an elder? What is it? What should elders do, number two. And number three, how are elders chosen? Very practical questions. Well, let's look at the first question. What is an elder? What is an elder? Here's basically a definition. An elder is a spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, officially recognized by the local church to work with other elders, Spiritually mature elders in exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. Spiritually mature man, knowledgeable in the scriptures, officially recognized by the local church to work with other spiritually mature elders in exercising oversight and shepherding God's flock. That's what an elder is. Now we're going to unpack that definition as we get through this message. But there's a lot of different terms used in the New Testament When it comes to the office of elder. The first one is simply that, elder. This is the word in our text. It's used in many texts. Obviously, they were a clearly defined, officially recognized group of men. Yes, I said men. There's a clear teaching throughout the New Testament. And and, and that is simply this. This office of elder is restricted to men. I didn't write it. God did. But that's, that's what he wrote. I mean, since elders are to teach and to exercise authority over the local church, that's their role. To have women elders would violate Paul's clear directive that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's right there in black and white. You can't get around this. Some people say well you 're nitpicking no i 'm not if you don 't get this right, everything else is wrong i 'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two, look at what it says in verse eleven to fifteen Let a woman, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit this is Paul, I do not permit a woman woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first, then Eve." And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is not a male chauvinist attitude. This is just basic biblical doctrine and church polity. Does God use women in ministry? Definitely. Several of our women here at Grace Bible Church are in some kind of ministry. Probably more of the women are involved in ministry than some of the men. Because that's just the way it usually is. They're willing to be used. And so it's very clear throughout Scripture, there's no room, absolutely no room, for women elders or women pastors if we want to be biblical about it. I mean, trust me, I've listened to some women teach the Word. It blew my mind. Some of them are incredible teachers. Incredible teachers. If they get together and they teach a bunch of women. I don't have a problem with that. Even if they, at a conference, okay, and you got a mixed thing there and a woman gets up and and teaches. I don't even have a problem with that, to be honest with you. Because it's not within the church. It's very specific here. It's under the leadership of the church. That's what we're talking about. See, the problem is some Christian men take this, you know, everywhere else. You know, you can't talk, you know, woman, you'd be silent. You know, in my house, you know, that's ridiculous. We don't treat our women that way. We don't treat our wives that way. Here we're talking about leadership. By the way, in the New Testament, the churches are always described by the city in which they operate. The church at Ephesus, the church at Corinth, the church at Rome. And there's always multiple elders in those cities. And sometimes due to the size back then, they didn't have a hall they would meet in. Okay, so due to the size of the people that came out, a lot of times they would meet in several locations. And the reason they would meet in several locations is because back then they met in houses. They would meet across the city in different houses on the Lord's Day. And so they would have one or more elders in charge of each location. But the church in the city was viewed as a unit. It was the church at Ephesus. It wasn't 1st Baptist Church, 2nd Baptist Church, 3rd Baptist Church, Grace Bible Church, River Grace Bible Church, This Grace Bible Church. It wasn't that. That's what we have today, unfortunately. I don't know how to correct that, but that's what we have. The more liberal people would say, well, if you would just lay off your doctrine and just come together with everybody, whether they're liberal or uh, conservative, and hold hands and sing Kumbaya, that would solve the problem. No, it wouldn't. We're called to protect the church. And that includes from erroneous doctrine.
0: If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650 366 9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to uh, visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650 366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth.